This morning, I get to continue Pastor Harrison and my sermon series, Encountering God. And I, I said to somebody a few weeks ago that it strikes me that the Christian Reformed Church and maybe churches or denominations in general, we don't tend to plan for success. I always worry about failure. And I think the same is true when it comes to having a real encounter with God. That often when we think about encountering with God, we assume or worry that it only happens to other people or it's not going to happen to me. We set ourselves up to fail or at least not to be prepared when we do encounter God. And so the question or the focus for our sermon this morning is, how will God look to you when you meet him? How will you be prepared when or if you do encounter God? Will you be just sitting on those, like on the, on the chairs on the picture behind me? Just sitting, waiting, wondering if the empty chair will ever be filled? Or will you be actively working and hoping and investing what God has already given you? Our scripture passage this morning is from Matthew chapter 25, one of the parables of Jesus. Uh, and he says... Uh, in this parable, uh, or in this parable, excuse me, he talks about the kingdom of God, and he's in a, this is a part of the book of Matthew where Jesus continually talks about the kingdom of God. So, uh, we'll get those words up on the screen behind me and invite you to either read along or follow along on the screen or just to listen as I read for us. So, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another, two bags, and to another one, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had been given five bags of gold to the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. And so also, the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag of gold went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought him the other five and said, Master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, here I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the master, or the man, excuse me, with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, here I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then he came to the man who had received one bag of gold. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you know that I have harvested harvested where I have not sown and gathered seed where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have at least put my money on deposit with the bankers. 
so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take this bag of gold from him and give it to the one who had 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more. But though, and he will have an abundance. They will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. And throw this worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So far, the reading of God's word. Well, last year, Yvon Chouinard decided to retire. The guy on the screen behind me. He wanted to do some traveling. He wanted to do some good in the world. But first, he had to decide what he wanted to do with his $3 billion company. You may know this story. The company was Patagonia. It's an outdoor clothing company. And Yvonne had spent his career and shaped his company to fight against climate change. And so he decided that he couldn't just give his company away to an individual or a few individuals, and that he didn't want to trade it on the public market. So he worked very hard and came up with a plan by which he could devote all future company profits to fighting against climate change. Now, Here's what he wrote on uh, the Patagonia website. He said, one option was to sell Patagonia and donate all the money, but we couldn't be sure that a new owner would maintain our values and keep our team of people around the world employed. Another path was to take the company public, but what a disaster that would have been. Every, or even uh, public companies with good intentions are under too much pressure to create short-term gain, and that's always at the expense of long-term vitality and responsibility. Truth be told, he said, there was no good options available, so we created our own. Now, we're not here to talk about Patagonia, but I bring up that story because it's important, I think, to recognize that this very wealthy person thought it was too dangerous for him to entrust his legacy to any particular person and way too dangerous to have his, have his inheritance, as it were, be traded on the public market. This is the real world. In the real world, people who are purposeful with their money and with their ethics are very, very slow to trust other people. Jesus knows what the real world is like. And frankly, it makes Jesus' story about this rich man going on a journey all the more remarkable. To appreciate that, I want to offer some context as we start. This is a parable, so it's a story about a master going on a trip and giving away eight talents of money. The NIV says eight bags of money, but uh, the Hebrew or, or the Greek word that Jesus uses is talents. I say that Jesus is giving these away, but really it's a trust. He's expecting that his servants will steward or use his money for his interests, for his purposes. Jesus is not saying, and because this is a story, Jesus is not saying this actually happened. He's not holding up a newspaper and saying, look, a man went away on a trip. Jesus is saying this is what the kingdom of God is like. We know, all of us, what the real world is like. We know that wealthy people don't just trust other people with their money. But this is what the kingdom of God is like, Jesus says. Now, I hope uh, you haven't heard the same kind of sermons that I've heard on this topic. But if you have, I want to just set it straight. 
Because too often somebody reads this passage and then quickly jumps away from money into uh, what the English word talent means. So right away we talk about an allegory. We say, well, God is the master and he gives different people different abilities, different gifts, and we should all use our time and energy and money for Jesus. Sermon done. I hope that's not it. I hope and fully believe that the, the words of Jesus and the parables of Jesus about the kingdom of God are more than just a small moral lesson for you or for me to use in our extra time with the little bit of money that we have, the little bit of talent or time that we have, and the little bit of energy we have at the end of the day. <clears throat> First of all, this is a story about the master. And it's a story about a master with a lot of money. But it's not a story about bags of money. The NIV is doing a good thing here. They're trying to correct the problem of people who misread that word talents and don't think about money. But it doesn't really help to talk about bags of money. Because you see, if, if, if I say someone got away with two bags of money, I think you imagine a bank robber, right? He's got a bag in each hand and he's running off. But Jesus says that this master gives away five talents and two talents and one talent. In Jesus' day, a talent was not a unit of currency. It wasn't an amount of money. A talent was a unit of weight. So one talent is 75 pounds or 35 kilograms of gold. So the guy who gets shafted, as it were, and only gets one, uh, is getting 75 pounds of gold. The one who gets five is getting hundreds of pounds of gold, 150 kilos of gold. It's a lot. You can't really carry 150 kilos of gold with you very far at all. Some of us might not even carry it at all or lift it. By contrast, a good wage in Jesus' day, if you are a worker, uh, a good wage would be a denarius which was a small coin, but again, not valued for what it said, valued for its weight, and it weighed about four and a half grams. So, if you're a good worker in Jesus' day, you never took a day off, you didn't buy food, you didn't feed your family, you didn't give to the temple, you'd, and you earned one denarius a day, you'd get a talent after 5,400 days of work. So, it's, a talent is more than just a bag. But money also is not just about uh, conversion rates. It's not just about weights. Money is always relative, too. There are countries around the world we know whose money is worth less than the Canadian dollar or more than the Canadian dollar. Some of them a lot less. A few of them a lot more. So I'm going to give you one more point of comparison. In the Old Testament, the, the, uh, the writer Moses in the, in the first five books of the Bible gives in great detail how the tabernacle was built. And the tabernacle, the gold used in the tabernacle was just under 30 talents worth of gold. This businessman, this master who goes on a journey has eight talents that he gives away to his servants. So obviously he has more than that besides as well. This is just what he has in cash as it were. So Jesus is telling a story about a man who has as much money as about a third of the nation of Israel. This man is the 1% in the ancient world. That's the kind of story that Jesus is telling. 
He's not a kind of rich guy or your grandpa, I don't think, um, who has a little bit of money and has done well for himself. Jesus is telling a story about somebody like Bill Gates or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett. Somebody who has more money than we can imagine. He's not giving away a few bags of gold. He's entrusting today's equivalent of tens of billions of dollars to his three different servants. Can you imagine any one of these big businessmen who I just mentioned or others who maybe who you know of, can you imagine any of them going on a trip and entrusting their whole company and value to somebody else, to anybody else? Frankly, it's one of the things that makes Yvonne Chouinard's story so remarkable. The fact that even with strings attached and intention, he actually walked away from all his money. You might have well said to yourself before, why doesn't Bill Gates or whoever it is just retire? They have enough, don't they? But what we find in our world is that people who have a lot of money get very attached to it. They even sometimes are controlled by their money. The more money they have, the less they think about giving it away. Even Yvonne Chouinard, who had a story I told at the beginning, he wanted to decide exactly how his money and his legacy was going to be spent. Now, we know how the real world works. But imagine now, or or understand now, what Jesus is saying about who God is. Jesus is saying, God is the master who is far wealthier than anybody else. And yet God chooses to share his wealth with people. God chooses to share his wealth with you. God has the wealth of the universe. And he's entrusting it to you. In other words, you have been entrusted with far, far more than you think. What would change if you actually saw your life that way? If you actually saw yourself as the recipient of even some of the vast riches of our immeasurably wealthy God? Someone else might be given 50 billion Someone else might be given 20 billion, but you are given 10 billion while your master is away. If this was your situation or my situation, I hardly think that I would be put out or upset by the master's gift. You wouldn't have time to be angry. You wouldn't have time to be competitive. If anything, if you wanted to do anything with your money at all while your master was gone, you would have to start right away. Can you imagine how you would feel if your master, your boss, entrusted you to manage $10 billion? It's far beyond our ability to actually sit down and count it. As I said in the introduction, Jesus is uh, telling this story about the kingdom of God in the midst of several stories in a row in Matthew about This is what the kingdom of God is like. And here's another kind of angle or window into what the kingdom of God is like. What an amazing shock it is for us to receive anything from God. 
We don't expect that any of the big businesses or certainly the big business owners in our country or in our world are actually going to give us anything. Everything costs something, we say. So what an amazing shock to receive anything from God, let alone the vast riches that he lavishes on us. Even those who have less than others still receive vast amounts from the treasury of the Almighty God. Friends, this is grace. This is the generosity and the trust of the master that is shocking beyond our expectations. The master isn't just giving some money to his servants. He's honoring them by giving them so much of what he has and trusting them to do what is best with it. This is not about the extras. This is not about the little bit of time that you have left over at the end of the day or the little bit of money that you've decide, decided that you're, you'd be good enough to give away. This is about being honored and blessed with the vast riches of our almighty God. That's what makes the actions of the third servant so shameful, so awful. The third servant is, he receives this incredible gift, the same as the other two. And then he turns around and treats it as if it was common, as if it was nothing, unvaluable. He buries it in the ground, treats it like it was dirt. And gold isn't worth as much when it's dirty. The camera, the focus on this story is on the third servant. He receives far more attention than the other two, both attention from the master and attention in terms of Jesus' story. There's more time, more more ink spilled on this third person. He's the one who buries the money, who keeps it exactly as it was given to him. Even though I said maybe even devalues it a little bit because he gets it kind of a mess. But I wonder what other decisions this person could have made. He decides that he's going to bury the gold and just do nothing about it. But his master gives him another option. He said, well, at least you could have invested it. You could have taken it to the bank and at least earned a little bit of passive income off of it. Maybe he could have uh, used his money the way that some people in our world use their money. People with money often feel overconfident. Whether they've earned it all or just inherited it, they're eager to tell other people how to invest or what to do with their money, with their energy, with their priorities. Even a servant who, with everything he has as a trust, he might still feel overconfident and be eager to, to say, look at me, look what I've got. You can learn some things. If the first thing this story is about is about the master, and the gracious gift of the master, then the second thing that this is about is about asking yourself and asking ourselves, how do I fit in the story? Jesus tells this story because, and tells this scenario because he wants us to imagine ourselves in it. Where do you fit? Where do I fit in this story? Am I like the first or second servant, or am I more like the third servant? What's my attitude toward God, toward the kingdom of God? 
if and when you look at what you have, do you recognize that what you have is a trust from God? The Heidelberg Catechism asks, what do you understand by the providence of God, by God's providing for you? And the answer, part of the answer is that both fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, excuse me, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. Do you recognize that everything you have comes from God. When you look at the stuff you have, the money you have, the energy you have, the the investments that you have, the time that you have, do you recognize that it all comes from God? And are you using it for the good of the master, the good of God and the kingdom of God? Or are you worried about or caring about or providing for yourself? Where do you fit in the story? Are you like the first or second servant, or are you like the third? There's so many applications to this parable, but I want to just consider one in terms of our life together as a congregation. Not just the personal application, which is also important, but our shared life as a community. Because if this is true for us as individuals, then it's also true for us as a community. That if what we have together is a trust from God, then some of us, according to Jesus at least, some of us will always be tempted to bury what God has given us. In other words, another way to look at it is we'll look at some moment of time or something that God has given us and we'll say, yeah, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Don't touch it. In fact, will believe that so much that if someone else, a first or second servant, tries some new investment or idea, or someone tries to follow God's leading, we might even respond with shock. We might say, don't you see how reckless you're being? That money, that thing is from God. Keep it safe. Don't touch it. Don't change it. But these are not our master's words. Those are the words and the worries of the third servant. Others of us might look at the trust that we have received from God, and instead of thanking God, we might either feel pressure ourselves, oh no, what am I going to do with this? Or we might try to put pressure on others. And so instead of thanking God, we, we push others to say, look what I'm doing, you need to do the same thing. You see the way that I'm investing the money and the time and the talent that God has given me? You need to do it this way too. When we do that, we show our lack of confidence first in others and their ability to discern and be wise with what God has given them. But most of all, we show our lack of confidence in God. Because if God has given his resources, his vast resources to different people and different cultures around the world, then he fully expects that each of them and all of them, that each of us and all of us will use what God has given us to the fullest of our own ability. In other words, that we should use what God has given us not to be the way that someone else wants us to be, 
but to be the way that God leads us to be. To lead and to invest in a way that serves God and his kingdom, but also is characteristic of who we are. When the master returns, he says, well done to the first servant and to the second servant. He says, and then to the third servant, he judges him. He says, you wicked, you lazy servant. Why does he judge the third servant? Maybe it's obvious. But I want to suggest that the master has not given his talents to one person, nor to one kind of person. God has done what wealthy people wisely do. God has diversified his investments in all people. When we read the story of Scripture, we see that even though from the beginning God created all things good, God was not satisfied to leave it at good. He was not satisfied to leave Adam and Eve in the garden and just have everyone else pile into the garden year over year. God expects that his image bearers will cultivate and work with the good that he has given us for something greater, for something even better. And God has given his wealth and his image to all people. Tom Steffen and William Bjorker in their book, uh, The Return of Oral Hermeneutics, say that this is why the biblical faith is the most transcultural and translatable religion of all time. Because ideally, it's not a transmission of religion, which is largely cultural, one way of being, but it's a transmission of faith, which is to say a transmission of relationship, care, and trust. This has always been God's heart and intent to reach people where they are and to allow them to maintain their cultural identity and express their faith in him from within that identity. God expects, in other words, God expects that all people will do something and do something different with what he has given them. Some of you may be fans of The Mandalorian or Star Wars, and I was just May the 4th recently. God does not want an army of clones. God does not want a bunch of passive robots. God shows us in Jesus exactly what it means to receive and to use the riches of God. And the more that we follow the example of Jesus the more we become the great and diverse people of God, showing God's kingdom life the way that he intends. There's a saying in English, that good is the enemy of great. We sometimes try to preserve what we have, what we already have, even though it's good, because we're worried about risking anything, even for something better. And we have all been given something By God, we have each, you have each been given something by God. There's no disagreement, however, among Christians about whose wealth, whose status, whose glory, whose goodness is the greatest. In the kingdom of God, in the family of God, whose wealth, whose status, whose glory, whose honor is the greatest? It's Jesus. 
Jesus was and is the human whom God gave the most to, whom God entrusted with the most, the master entrusted with the most. And Jesus never once treated his humanity like it was only good to be buried in the dirt. Jesus lived his life with intention and with care. He lived his life with passion and with power. And what's more, Jesus grew what was given to him. You might imagine that because Jesus is the son of God and God himself, that you can't improve, we would say, you can't improve on perfect. But the Bible never claims that Jesus is perfect, not in our Western enlightenment sense of perfection and done and finished and don't touch it. Jesus is the sinless son of God. He's fully God, but also fully human. And Matthew tells us earlier in his gospel that Jesus grew in wisdom, in statue, in favor with God and men. Jesus took throughout his adolescence and his growing up and throughout his life and ministry, he took what was entrusted to him and he developed it while also caring for and lifting up others. The main way that Jesus does this Again and again, we see this in the Gospels. Too many times to count. The way that Jesus invests what the Father has given him is he is always focused on the Master. He's always focused on his Father. In this parable as well, he points out that God has not first given himself and his wealth to only one person. He's given himself to many people from beginning to end, from every corner of the earth. And everyone is given the same task to make something of what God has given us. Not just to do it as individuals, alone, in silos, ignoring others, but even to do it together. This is what the kingdom of God is like, Jesus says. But as we close, I want to ask one more question of this story that I think is important for us. It's the question that's brought up by this third servant who gets all the attention or most of the attention in the story. And the question is this, is my master a hard man? Is my master a hard man? I said at the beginning of this sermon that we usually plan, we don't plan for success. Too often we plan for failure. And that your answer to the question, who is my, how do I feel about my master? Is my master a hard man? will determine on the state of your heart, what you have been doing to prepare your heart and yourself for the return of the master. If you take some of your own time after the service or after the sermon and you read this story again, you'll notice that Jesus does not say that the master is a hard man. The servants who, the first two servants who invest their time and their talents and their great returns They don't say that the master is a hard man. The only person who says, my master is a, I knew that you were a hard man, is the servant who a moment later, the master says, you are wicked and lazy. So the question is, should we trust the judgment of the third servant? Should we trust the judgment of the wicked, lazy servant? I suggest that we should not. This man has disrespected and dishonored his master. 
He's shown himself through his actions and then through his words that he is selfish and self-centered. By contrast, we hear no complaints from the people who are busy working for the master's best interests. They hardly figure into this story and they don't figure into the controversy. They are busy doing what the master has asked them to do. They're busy investing. And so before we close, I want you to understand that the people who are busy with the work of the Lord tend not to have the time or energy for self-centeredness. The people who are busy with the work of the Lord tend not to have the time for bickering between them. I don't mean that people who are busy with the work of the Lord don't have real complaints or real struggles. Because they do. What I mean to say is that those who are not actively working for the master are the first to be lazy, to cast blame, to complain. This is a warning that Jesus gives his listeners. Let it be a warning to you, to us as well. If we heed the warning of this parable, then we will always look at the example of the one who is given the most by God the Father, Jesus. Jesus is always focused, always full of life, always committed, full of joy, and even full of rest. Jesus is always focused on the Master, on the Father, and always pointing us to the Father. Holding out for us a better way to move forward as individuals and to move forward together. So as you, as an individual, as we together explore what the Master has given us, and as we use what the Master has given us, our hearts will be softened, both to God and to other people. We'll begin to see more and more the glory and the wonder and the honor that is ours in the kingdom of God already today. There's so much more to say. But let's come to God in prayer and ask him to give us his presence and to prepare our hearts so that when we encounter him, we will meet him with open and eager hearts. Let's pray. Father God, we see in this story, this parable, that everything we have is a trust from you. What's more than that, God, we see that you are such a great Master, Lord, King, Father. You have given us, you, you own far more than the wealthiest person in the world. Everything we have and everything we are is yours. Help us, Lord, open our hearts so that we might stand in awe of your glory and in awe of your grace and your love, the favor that you give us that you trust us with much, that you trust us even with a little. God, we, we ask that you'd open our hearts so we might appreciate the depths and the riches of your love and your grace given to us. God, prepare our hearts as well so that when we encounter you, we would do so eagerly, humbly, and thankfully, that we would not be focused on our very real struggles, on our very real difficulties, and on our very real worries. 
but instead, Lord, that we would focus on your glory, on your goodness, on your love, and the honor that is ours through the one you have given the most to, your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.